I want to uh, say a word about Jesse and why we're using Jesse this morning. Uh, be, be, beside the fact she's an outstanding young mom, besides that, one of the things that's interesting with Jesse, as I, as I heard her story, it seemed to me that it was in some ways the story of our church. Uh, you're going to hear things about Jesse's story. She's out of the Catholic Church. And many of you know, 30 to 40 percent of our new members come out of the Catholic Church. Uh, uh, Jesse has a little bit of uh, partying in her background. And I've heard your stories. Many of you have come out of that kind of a background. And um, there's several things where um, Jesse's story is really the story of uh, people who come in the door at Orchard. And so listen with that lens, please. Uh, Jesse, I'm eager for you to share this. Be still and know that I am God. Psalm 46.10 I don't know if you have to credit where a verse comes from in the Bible every time you quote it, since I don't normally quote Bible verses in my writing, or everyday life for that matter, but it seems appropriate. But what does it mean to me? It was one of the first Bible verses my son brought home from preschool. And as we were practicing them, my daughter kept telling me over and over and over, Mom, be still, and I am God. I know what she meant. (laughs) And I kept hearing it and hearing it and hearing it until finally something clicked. It is for me. It is for me to understand that I don't have to do it all, and I don't have to have all of the answers, And I don't have to hold everything inside because at the end of the day, I can just be still and know that there's a God that is there, that is real, that I can count on, that is my father. It is a big step for me to be able to write these words, and I'm working on becoming the kind of person that believes it with everything I have. I'm 32 years old. I was born in New Hampton, Iowa in 1979 to Laura and Dennis Stoltz. My parents' first baby, Benjamin, didn't live long after he was born. My older brother, Jeremy, was born in 1974, and my younger brother, Jonathan, in 1983. I come from a relatively normal upbringing. My dad owned a tavern for most of his working career, and my mom worked at Sara Lee in New Hampton. When Sara Lee closed, she went back to school, got her degree, and was a special ed behavior disorder teacher in Waterloo. I spent most of my formative years growing up in the small town that my dad's tavern was located in, Ionia. My family grew up Catholic. My parents' parents were Catholic, and so on and so on, I assume. We went to church most Sundays, and I always went to CCD on Wednesdays. I've really tried to think about the foundations to my faith and how I came by them. We didn't really pray at home. Sometimes we said a quick prayer before dinner, but that was occasional. We certainly didn't talk about God, or praying, or faith, and if we had a Bible, I don't know where it was, so my faith has always just kind of been assumed. I assume that there is a God, and if I'm a fairly decent individual, and I believe in him, I will be rewarded with heaven. I didn't question it, it just was. And for that, I'm grateful for my Catholic upbringing. It was pretty simple. Until the last couple of years, that has pretty much been my faith statement. When I turned 15, in order to stay cool and fit in with some of the kids I was hanging out with, I started drinking on the weekends. Nothing too major. I remember that my first drink was in a town called AV, and we had the audacity to walk around in the middle of the day 
with plastic water bottles filled with black velvet and Pepsi stolen from my friend's parents' liquor cabinet. I thought it tasted horrible and probably didn't drink enough to even get a buzz. However, as the weekends progressed, so did the partying. My friends were starting to separate into two distinct groups, the drinkers and the non-drinkers. I was definitely entrenched in the drinkers. It wasn't really a big thing, just that some of us went to parties on the weekends and others didn't. It is a gift from God that no one got hurt when you take into account that we drove drunk and I was sometimes hanging out with some very unsavory older characters that thought it was pretty cool to hang out with drunk 15 and 16 year old girls. So you can just see a recipe for disaster brewing. I never got hurt besides some nasty hangovers and I never did anything with anyone that I would regret. When you take into account the amount of alcohol that my friends and I consumed in that time period, those are both amazing things. I kept my grades up. I did good in my extracurricular activities. It was simply something that I did on the weekends and had fun with. Growing up, I did spend a lot of time with my dad, which I think has cultivated a lot of things about the person I am today. My mom had always been the one that loved us openly and easily, and my dad was more the gruff, tough love kind of guy. I worked side by side with him for a lot of hours. It was a great way to spend time with him. And surprisingly, because I know what you may be thinking, I never stole beer from my dad. I don't think the idea ever really crossed my mind. Sure, I was lying about what I was doing on the weekends, and I was breaking the law with my drinking, but I didn't steal, and especially not from my dad. It was not the first time that I would blur the lines of right and wrong a little bit so that I got the outcome I desired. I still do that today. My dad didn't talk about faith or God, but in his way, he instilled a lot of values in me that I carry today, like the value of hard work, honesty, and how to be a good listener. Trust me, once some of those guys had a few old mills, it was all you could do but listen. So then I met the guy who would turn out to be forever etched in my past as my first husband. He was going to be a senior in high school, and I was going off to college, but we decided to keep dating. When you and I and Hawkeye brought us to the same town, his parents, who are also pretty strong Catholics, decided, which I still can't believe, that it would be better for us to buy a house together than to pay rent. So they invested in a house for us that we bought from them a year later. They put a lot of work into fixing it up, and we had a constant string of roommates that live with us. There came a point about three years into our relationship that I distinctly remember. The night before, I had been out partying all night with some of my friends and ended up fooling around with another guy. This was not the first time that I had cheated on him, but because I didn't sleep with the people, I didn't consider it really cheating. But it was pretty apparent to me that it was probably not the way a relationship should be heading. I remember sitting out on our porch, ready to confess all of my sins, and I started the conversation with something like, we need to make a change. He pretty much misread where I was going with the conversation and said, what, like get married? And then I got all excited about the idea of a wedding dance and what color my bridesmaids' dresses would be and who we would invite that I forgot all about the fact I was making out with some other guy the night before. So instead of breaking up, we got engaged. Not a very strong relational foundation. But it made sense. We had been dating for long enough, already had a house, and we did love each other in our own way. We decided to have a Catholic wedding, so I had to take a weekend seminar and meet with a priest for a few weeks, who I guess was supposed to decide whether or not we were ready to be married. I don't think he was a very good judge, because I knew that we weren't, but I put on my good face again and said all the right things, and we went ahead and planned our wedding. We were married on September 22, 2001. We were a young couple getting married, 
My parents had a lot of fun friends, and all in all, it was a good party. But it wasn't a marriage. It never was. I remember standing up front and saying the words while in my head screamed a voice, Why are you doing this? And I told that voice because I can't risk my image and all that I have built by not doing this. I will not embarrass myself or my family by having the courage to admit that I knew what I was doing was wrong. And I did know it deep down. But I was married now, and we moved on with our married life. Let me say that at this point in my story, the one thing that I held as absolute truth in my little world was that my husband loved me. That I might have screwed up in the past, but once we got engaged, I took our relationship seriously and thought this was the direction of my future and thought he felt the same. A few weeks earlier, my best friend's sister had lost her battle with leukemia. My unassuming, unshakable faith was probably shaken a little bit here. A 16-year-old girl god? Really? She had so much in front of her. It was so sad. And to see someone go through that and to be so strong, it has really stuck with me. I sometimes wonder if our places were reversed, if I was in a hospital with cancer, knowing I was going to die, and especially knowing I was going to die at 16, if I could be the one saying, it's okay, I'm going to go to heaven and it's going to be great. Don't be sad. To hear that teenager say with such conviction that it was going to be okay had to be God talking and walking her through that part of her life. Which brings me back to my rocky marriage. I think that I was feeling the fragility of life a little bit and started to bring up the idea of when my then-husband and I should have kids. He wanted nothing to do with the subject, and I think that is what started our fight. My world came crashing down in one fight. I'd maybe always known that something was going on, but I wasn't in any way prepared for the revelations my husband laid on me that night about his infidelity and drug use, among other things. I didn't want to get divorced, more because I saw it as a failure than because I wanted to save the marriage, but he didn't want to try any measures to save the marriage. So after a little discussion, we decided to divorce. I had a good high school friend that lived in Kansas City and had always wanted to try living in a bigger city. I took this as my opportunity. I started a pretty dark month or two in my life. I was crushed, and I was alone for the first time. I had never lived alone and never really desired to live alone. I've thought back to this time and thought, if only I would have been stronger in my faith, maybe I would have had somewhere to turn. And where was God when I needed him? But then, with hindsight being 2020, I realized exactly where God was. He gave me the answer I needed by giving my husband the wherewithal to stand up and admit that our marriage wasn't working. He gave me the answer by pushing me to Kansas City and putting a good friend back in my life. Slowly, I started to get over it. I waited tables to pay the rent and started looking for a real job away from the world of Hy-Vee. I was proud of myself for being able to send out resumes, go on interviews, and landed a pretty great entry-level job in Kansas City. During my first solo 4th of July weekend, I came home to spend time with family and friends. I headed straight to an annual family party that I had attended in the past and arrived in the early evening. Unfortunately for me, most of my friends had been drinking most of the day, so I was forced to catch up quickly, which was now legal, by the way. I had a couple of beers at a table with my future husband, Matt, whom I had, strangely enough, never met until that day. Matt and I had a ridiculous number of mutual friends in common and had heard each other's names but had never met. The degrees to which our lives are intertwined are complicated, and I can't do them justice here, but it could be nothing short of God 
putting the right person in my life at the right time. In my opinion, this was a destiny moment for me. For whatever reason, Matt and I clicked. We both reminisce about the first long weekend that we were together and are kind of awestruck. We went from two complete strangers to two people that were inseparable. In one weekend, I could see the path to my future. Matt is seven years older than I am, which I'm sure he enjoys me pointing out, and I appreciated his maturity. He is smart and rational and a great father. I moved back to Iowa, went back to work for Hy-Vee, and moved in with a couple of my friends. Soon, Matt and I were living together, and on the year anniversary of us meeting, we got engaged. We bought a house and got married April 1st, 2005. We decided to start trying to have a family right away. Matt and I have always, on most things, seen so eye to eye and have had such a shared outlook on most things in our lives that our relationship is usually pretty easy. It is such a change from the turmoil and, in hindsight, immaturity of my first marriage that sometimes I wonder when the fallout will occur. We are lucky in the fact that we got pregnant right away, and I mean right away, so Benjamin arrived less than a year after our wedding. So then we were three. I think for both of us that this was sort of an awakening in our faith. We both grew up in the Catholic tradition of getting your child baptized shortly after their birth. I didn't really know why, but I certainly wanted to continue in this tradition and grew on easy as Ben was approaching his six-month mark and wasn't baptized, and we didn't really even have a church. When we decided to get married, I basically searched the web for who would marry two non-practicing Catholic misfits, one of whom was divorced, and came up with a Methodist church in Cedar Falls. We met with them, met their requirements, and it was the easiest solution for us to just attend church there. We liked the pastor well enough. A girl I knew also attended church there, and I emailed her on the process of how to join, and it was her suggestion that we maybe check out Orchard, as she had heard about really great programs for children. We attended service with my cousin, then a college student who attended Orchard, one Sunday morning, and haven't looked back since. Both Matt and I leave church in awe of the fact that you can feel good when you leave, and on top of that, you actually learn something. Not only that, but I am challenged to grow in my faith and encouraged to get involved. Over the first few months we attended, we found more and more people that we knew or that were friends of friends or that we wanted to become friends with and began to really feel like not only would this be a place that we could attend church, but that we wanted to attend church. When Ben was a year old, we announced to our family and friends that we were having our second baby. Madeline arrived in October of 2007, and Matt and I continued, for the most part, to love the challenges of being parents to these little creatures. And since we were making it look easy, we went ahead and added another baby about 17 months later, Zachary, and 22 months after that, Wesley. So in the span of seven years, we got engaged, married, and had four kids. Pretty whirlwind. We love being parents to our kids, and our kids continue to amaze and amuse us. We plan on maybe adding to our family someday, although only in animal form. It's still in negotiations. When I first wrote this narrative about two years ago, I kind of wrapped it up here, but left a question at the end about what I would do if my faith were ever truly tested. I've always had that little creeping voice in the back of my head saying, you have it too good, things are going too well for you, this can't last, type of thing. And then my faith was tested. December 18, 2011, my family, my parents, my brothers, my niece and nephew, and my kids 
all met to take long-awaited and what seemed like logistically impossible family pictures, which I think we have a picture of that. Um, the last family picture we had consisted of a six-month-old Ben, not a six-year-old Ben, so it was time to update. We took some great pictures and enjoyed a really great family supper afterwards. I know now that this day was a gift from God. The next day, my mom went to work and had a seizure in her classroom. My entire family quickly assembled at Allen Hospital for the beginning of both the shortest and longest couple weeks of my life. My mom was intubated at Allen when she lost her airway during a second seizure in the MRI machine. She had to stay on the breathing tube and be fairly sedated that entire day. I stayed at the hospital with her that night in case there were any changes and in case she woke up. She did wake up the next morning confused and wanting to talk, which is hard to do with a tube in your throat. They were able to take the tube out, and we were able to tell her about what had happened. She didn't remember much of it. That Tuesday and Wednesday, she was pretty much herself, joking, trying to be a model patient for the nurses, reminding me that I had to get her Christmas presents ready for her students and associates. She asked if she was going to die. We told her, of course not, Mom. They aren't sure what is really wrong with you yet, but we'll figure it out. She said she remembered that when she was having the first seizure, she told her good friend at school, well, if I go, I guess I'm ready. I've lived a good life. I realize now that my mom had a quiet, strong faith, something I think I admire and try to model. She was airlifted to Iowa City, and honestly, things went downhill from there. It was a blur of doctors and nurses, and I'm pretty sure that I now have a couple of credits towards my medical degree. It was a roller coaster of a little bit of good news, a little bit of bad news, one step forward, two steps back. Your mood could go from ecstatic to gut-wrenchingly crushed, depending on who walked in the room. Suddenly we were faced with things like feeding tubes, tracheostomies, long-term care, and quality of life. I prayed. I prayed so hard that sometimes I didn't even know I was praying. It was just like a constant mantra growing through my head. And maybe it was a selfish prayer. I didn't always pray for my mom to get better. I mostly prayed that my family wouldn't have to make a decision. How do you put your mom, and for my dad, your wife, on life support, and then when you decide you have given her enough time to get better, and she doesn't, then take her off? What is the right amount of time to wait? This is the situation we are looking at. So I prayed that I wouldn't have to make a decision. When it came to the day that we were going to put in the trach in the feeding tube, there was a sudden change in my mom's condition. Her brain was starting to swell. If we didn't treat it, it would be fatal. I'm so grateful that I could be there with my dad when they gave us the news about her swelling. We were honestly told that we had 30 minutes to make a decision and to not treat it would be fatal. My dad, my brothers, and I had talked about all of the angles over the last couple of weeks and were both comfortable in the fact that my mom would not want to live if she had no quality of life. It would be selfish of us to keep her away from her reward in heaven. We decided to not treat the swelling, and honestly, I've never believed more strongly that God answers your prayers. It was maybe not the outcome we had wanted, but I don't think my mom ever suffered. We'd gotten to spend a couple of great days together as a family, and compared to some of the other options that had been discussed, it was a blessing. On a side note, I now feel very passionate about the need for living wills. No one thinks this will ever happen to them, but it can. My mom got an infection that two people in the entire country get each year, and she went from being a perfectly healthy 59-year-old woman 
to someone with no neurological response in a matter of days. She had no living will, so in the end, the medical decisions were up to my dad. My family is so, so fortunate in that we all agreed in what was best for my mom and would support my dad no matter what, but that is not always the case. But I digress. So I read in a book that good friends are like angels. Let me tell you that over the course of my mom's illness, passing, and the following weeks, my family and I were surrounded by angels. It is sometimes a tragedy that brings people together, which in and of itself is tragic. But when something like this happens, people take time to stop their busy lives to show you that you are not alone. They pray for you. They cook for you. They send you cards. They offer to watch your kids. They actually watch your kids. They give you a hug. They send you an email. It goes on and on. It is amazing and overwhelming and truly was a picture of Christ's love in my life. My mom was a very big part of my family's life. Here's a picture of just our family. Um, maybe. She stayed with my family about five days a week. She helped Matt and I with the kids, and in return she had a place to stay that was a lot closer to her work. The entire time she was sick, Matt and I struggled with what to tell the kids about her illness, whether or not to let them see her, and ultimately what to tell them when she passed. We do not pretend to be masters of our faith who can eloquently and wisely pass this knowledge on to our children. If anything, it is the exact opposite. They are always teaching us things and reminding us to pray. We had no idea how to have this conversation with them. We sat them down that night, keep in mind they're ages one through five, and just told them that Grandma was very sick, the doctors tried very hard, but they could not make her better. We told them that she is an angel now and is in heaven with God and Jesus. And this is why I love kids. Ben, the five-year-old, looks at me and says, So Grandma is like our guardian angel, right? I nodded. So if our house was on fire, she could get us out. Yeah. So Grandma can walk on hot lava. Awesome. (laughs) And after laughing and then reveling in a five-year-old's thought process, I thought this kid has it right. It is awesome. Our four-year-old Maddie is a little more quiet and thoughtful. She had a hard time with the loss, not speaking or really being herself for several days. Then she started to ask questions that I answered as best I could. And she is the one that is always reminding me that Grandma is in heaven. Grandma lives on in our hearts. Grandma is an angel. We all miss her, but my dad and my brothers and our family are grateful for the time we had together. We are adjusting to our new normal. My perspective has maybe shifted a little bit, and the things that I thought mattered maybe don't matter so much. I would be lying if I told you that I have completely adjusted to the fact that my mom is gone. I haven't. Beyond that, I know that God walked me through those weeks and is still walking with me now. I was inexplicably able to handle this crisis, deal with doctors and nurses. My amazing husband must have had God on his side because he was home with our kids. I was always illegally checking my cell phone in my mom's hospital room. They don't like that. Um, And it was amazing how Orchard's daily engagement with Scripture walked me through the situation. I'd always heard about how if you really study Scripture, you will sense God talking to you, but had never experienced it until these last few months. On January 3rd, we took my mom off the breathing tube, and she died a few hours later. That morning, this was the verse. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Romans 5, 1-5. through 5. Talk about the scripture being a direct line to a conversation with God. It was amazing. I struggle sometimes with the challenges of being a mom to four young children versus the challenges at work versus the challenges of being a good wife versus the challenges of maintaining good friendships versus the challenges of being involved in things versus the challenges of just wanting to sit down and read a book or watch Modern Family. And in the struggle of all this, trying to find time to work on my faith. I can tell you that I don't do it every day. I try to pray before I go to bed, but usually find myself waking up with one of our four kids a few hours later and realizing I didn't get very far. I'm really trying to get involved in my Bible, but will admit that it is hard. So I don't know where the story will go from here. I still wait for the bottom to fall out. Apparently suddenly losing a mother isn't enough, and for my faith to be truly tested. I want to know that I have a faith and a belief in God that is unshakable. I want to pass that faith on to my husband and my children and maybe even the people around me. I want to be the kind of person who isn't uncomfortable about praying in public or maybe even going so far as asking people for prayers when I feel that I need them, which I did when my mom was sick, which still felt awkward, but I figured it was bigger than my awkwardness. I have a lot of work to do, but every day I try to make a step in the right direction knowing that God is right beside me. Is that too fast? <laughs> Great. Okay. Okay. Now, a couple things about Jesse's story. And uh, Jesse and I are friends, and she knows that I'm going to ask her a couple questions at this point. I may not get them exactly right. But first of all, when people tell their stories up there, we don't necessarily uh, – Approve the theology, right? Guardian angel rescuing from fires, your grandma, you know. <laughs> uh, and you know that and we know that. Now, here's the question, though. Um, your theology when you came to Orchard was, um, if I live a good life, if I'm pretty good, there's a God who loves me and I'll be in heaven. Mm-hmm. And as you've walked in the door... Uh, we've challenged that theology of yours. Mm-hmm. And, and I listened to your story, and I don't hear the name. I heard the name Jesus mm-hmm. once. Mm-hmm. And so for you, why isn't Jesus more in your story? Um, I think growing up, it was Jesus was kind of a character in a play. That's kind of how I've explained it. We knew um, the story of Jesus coming and dying on the cross and you know dying for our sins, and we understood it. And that was the end. And you move on. And God has always kind of been the figurehead. And so now, trying to figure out exactly where Jesus plays into my life is the challenge that I deal with every day. Yeah. You believe in Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know he died on the cross for your sin. But what you were telling me uh, this week was like a personal relationship with Jesus is a little harder to grasp. 
it's a concept that I get, but I don't know how to engage in. Engage in, yeah. I get it, but I'm not quite engaged. And, and I think that so many folks who come in our church, that's exactly where they are. They want to love God. They want to obey God. And then often they'll be in my office and they'll go, it seems like you guys make it so about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And uh, for us, it is about Jesus, that personal walk with him. Mm-hmm. And so that's what you're moving towards, mm-hmm. loving, believing. Working on. Working on, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so growing now in Christ mm-hmm. um, here at the church, uh, you took the leadership class and that meant a ton to you. Mm-hmm. Can you say a word or two about that? I think that's really what kind of brought it all to the forefront for me that I've always thought in my head that I understand this, but I'm not really doing anything about it. And so what do I need to do to do something about it? And that's really helped me do that and think every day, how can I engage this relationship with Jesus? Yeah. You've experienced a lot in seven years, mm-hmm. an awful lot in seven years at 32. Mm-hmm. And so we want to pray for you. And uh, any of you who still come in the door and you go, I think if I'm just a good enough person, God will receive me into his heaven. We need to know it's just not true. Nobody, nobody's a good enough person. And it's only in Christ and what he did on the cross. And then we receive that as grace that actually does it. Amazing. And that's it's amazing, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. It makes you want to get up in the morning. It's liberating. And it makes you want to love him back. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's pray. Okay. Father God, thank you for Jesse and for her story. Thank you for how you were with her in that hospital room when her mom was dying. Thank you how you were with her when uh, she had each of her kids. Thank you that you were with her when she took the leadership class and She started to learn more and more about you. Thank you that you were with her this morning as she stood in the front row getting ready to come up here. And you were with her as she shared. Father, for anyone in the room who was touched by the story, I pray that you'll be near them. And I know, Father, there are people in this room who uh, still feel like if I could just be good enough, God would accept me. And that's not what the message is. The good news is that none of us is good enough. But in grace... Christ died for us, and in grace, as we believe and follow him, you receive us. Father, if there's anyone who needs to know more about that, give them the opportunity and the courage to talk with one of our staff or with Jesse, please. In the name of Jesus, amen.